We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. It is 8.09 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you on this Saturday night. It's been a while. I want to thank uh, and give a shout out to Blois Olson, who you can hear every morning here on WCCO Radio, uh, along you know with times throughout the day. But you can certainly hear him every morning with uh, Dave Lee on the morning news uh, for breaking down the results of the GOP and DFL conventions. If you're just joining us, uh, Jeff Johnson, the Hennepin County Commissioner, won the, DFL, the GOP endorsement uh, at that convention up in Duluth. Uh, he will now face former Governor Tim Pawlenty uh, at the August 14th primary. Governor Pawlenty choosing to forego the endorsing convention and at the DFL endorsing convention in Rochester. A bit of a surprise as Representative Aaron Murphy comes out on top over Congressman Tim Walls and State Auditor Rebecca Otto. Uh, Congressman Walls says he will go on to the primary. He has always said that. So you've got two very contentious potentially uh, primaries coming up in August uh, with Walls versus Murphy and also Palenti versus Jeff Johnson. And others could still jump in because that deadline for registering and signing up to run is still June 5th, which is on Tuesday. Join me now, one of my favorite guests, the one and only Professor David Schultz. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. It's been a long time. It has been, and you've been out of the country. I mean, tell us about some of your travels. Yes, well, I was in Lithuania again. I, this is my second trip this year. I was teaching at their military academy, and it was just an exciting place to be again. And in anticipation of Donald Trump's, what seems to be what his on visit now with with North Korea, um, I will be in South Korea um, the 10th through the 14th of July, um, giving some talks there, being sponsored by the National Assembly. So I might be able to pick up, depending on whether the summit is on or off, and I know it's in Singapore, but regardless if it's on or off, I might be able to learn some interesting things about um, Korea to be able to bring back to the WCCO listeners. That would be absolutely fabulous. Well, let me ask you, first of all, your breakdown on these conventions. Let's start with the DFL convention, because not only was there sort of a surprise here on the governor's side, but also you had the veteran attorney general, Lori Swanson, failing to get the DFL endorsement. Your thoughts about overall the DFL endorsing convention? Well, overall, two things. First off, uh, you sort of have to wonder, does a convention really matter in, in the sense that Waltz is going on to challenge in the primary. We know if we look back over time that the endorsements at the convention for really both of them, but we'll just stay with the DFL, in terms of convention endorsements, um, don't oftentimes mean a lot because the primaries have, have generally produced different results. Now, we know, of course, four years ago, Dayton was the endorsed candidate and didn't really face any challenges. But over time, if we look back at it here, um, it is more often than not that the person who gets the convention endorsement doesn't necessarily go on to right. either win the primary or go on to win the general election. So you have to so you have to wonder about that in terms of how representative the the convention delegates are 
of let's say the of either the entire DFL again since we're talking about the DFL right. first. But the thing that it's also struck me about the overall DFL convention is the sense in which we're really seeing a generational shift that's going on here. And what I mean by that, you know, if, you know, Tim Waltz is sort of part of the old guard, Laurie Swanson kind of sort of the old guard, and the endorsements that were coming about here seem to represent a, a new generation, maybe the shifting of political power to millennials, perhaps, or something like that, or if not millennials, Gen Xers. So it's so, so that's what I think is going on here. Also, is that generational shift in terms of political influence? Well, let me ask you this. Let's go back to, to, to Governor Mark Dayton in 2010, correct? When he was just candidate, Mark Dayton yes. he was not yet the governor, and he chose to forego the endorsing convention and take it right to the primary. The endorsed candidate was uh, Speaker Margaret Anderson Kelleher, mm-hmm. and they faced off in the primary and. Of course, Governor Mark Dayton, or then candidate Dayton, won. Does it matter at all? Does it give Tim Walls less footing that he tried to get the endorsement and didn't win it, as opposed to just kind of blowing off the endorsement convention and going straight to the primary? Uh, Well, I'm not sure it does. And the reason why I say that is that going into the convention, he had already indicated that he would not necessarily... Um, uh, you know, honor the endorsement. Yeah. You, you said that from the beginning. Right from the beginning. And the reason why that's significant here is that we know with both parties that the people who attend the conventions don't like the idea of candidates kind of disregarding their, their, their endorsement process. And I think one of the things that might have hurt Waltz going into this was the fact that he said he wasn't going to honor the endorsement and so i think that might have put him at at somewhat of a of a of a disadvantage in terms of going into it and so i'm not completely sure that that he's hurt where i think he's hurt in a different sense is that he appeared to be at least early on the i'm going to say the unofficial um, endorsed candidate of the DFL. Um, he came out of the caucuses very strong, raised the most money, and a lot of people thought he was sort of the heir apparent. So I think maybe the expectations that he was going to do really well, um, um, I think, becomes more of the issue here in terms of the fact that that he he didn't he didn't you know after the first vote today um, 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 get the endorsement. But again, given the fact that he said he wasn't going to honor the endorsement, I, I think. He he lost votes um, in ways that um, that, were, that that hurt him for the endorsement process, but but I'm just not persuaded that this hurts him um, um, at all going into the general election or going into the primary. I mean, do do you think that you know sort of average folks here who might be at, at a baseball game or you know getting ready for graduations? Do you think that they're tuned into these conventions? No, no, I, I don't think they are. Um, and I think this is sort of classic inside baseball at this point, is that for those people who are, let us say, the, the convention people, the real inside DFL, they, they may care about this. But when we get to August 15th, which I believe is the date of the primary... I think, I think it's 
August 14th. 14, okay, 14, okay, August, get some, August 14th, okay. When we get to August 14th. Because it's usually on a Tuesday, but it's, it's, and it's sort of an obscure date, uh, you know. It is. Yeah, that I, week in August, most of us are checked out having fun trying to go to a lake or. That's right, that's right. Soak in some, some rays, you know. That's right, because we talked about this before that really the official start generally of the Minnesota campaign season is the state fair. Right. People sort of start thinking about there. So, so we're going to look at a convention, or not a convention, but a, a primary where it'll be questionable what the turnout is. You know, it's going to be probably, you know, the 5 to 7 to 8 percent, you know, voter turnout. Still a logic of small numbers, but certainly larger than the convention number of people. But I, I just think except for a very small number of people, they're not going to care about who got the endorsement or not. Are they going to care enough to vote in the primary? Well, that's really becoming the question. (laughs) That's really the big issue at this point, um, is is whether or not this is going to be a big enough of an issue that brings people out. Now, we know the year that Dayton, you know, know, prevailed in the primary against, I guess it was both Matt Atenza and Margaret Anderson Kelleher. um, That's right. Was Atenza still in there, too? Yes, he was. He was. Okay, all right. So it was three-way. The three of them... I'm pretty sure. Didn't didn't Margaret Kelleher have have the endorsement? She had the endorsement. If I remember correctly, so she had the endorsement, um, which meant the party could expend money on her behalf. Um, without the endorsement, the party would have to stay neutral. So you had money being spent by the party. If, I'm, if I'm, I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure she had the endorsement. So you had um, money being spent by the party. Matt Attenza, um, who's independently wealthy, spent money. Mark Dayton spent money. Um, and that kind of drove some of the turnout to where we got, what, I think a whopping, what, 8 or 9%, if I remember correctly, of, um, of people who came out during that primary season, including Republicans. But the point being is that that was, that was, that was a lot. So, so here we're going to get the DFL able to spend money um, on, on behalf of Aaron Murphy. You will have um, Tim Waltz raising and spending money. Um, and I think... That's going to be key. It's going to be the key in terms of how does that money um, um, drive people's awareness that there's actually a primary to get them to turn out to vote. Interesting. All right. Um, We do have to take a break because we've got some spots left over from baseball. We'll take a break. But when we come back, I want to continue the discussion about the primary and and certainly uh, maybe wrap up some of the Democratic side, but certainly the Republican side as well because you have this this giant, you know, the the man who was – the last Republican to win a statewide office, uh, arguably one of the most popular Republicans in, in many, many years, Tim Pawlenty, who is very much uh, in this race and in it to win it, uh, going to the primary, bypassing the endorsing convention today. Uh, more with Professor David Schultz on News Radio 830 WCCO after this. Breaking down the GOP and DFL conventions, uh, there will be two big primaries uh, in the governor's race uh, on August 14th on both sides. Uh, on the Republican side, at minimum, it will be former Governor Tim Pawlenty uh, versus Hennepin County Commissioner Jeff Johnson. On the Democratic side, at minimum, it will be Congressman Tim Walls and State Representative Aaron Murphy. Uh, I was talking with Blois Olson about the timing of this primary, which used to be in September. Mm-hmm. People wanted back in June. Isn't the August date, doesn't that have to do with making sure that overseas ballots can be mailed to those who are serving overseas? Yes, it does. This is all about the requirement that we have to have the the general elections ballots mailed out um, 
um, at least 45 days before the general election. And so the timing... Um, so, so it can't be in September. It can't be in September. Absolutely correct. And there was talk when they first moved the primary to move it to June. And I can still remember this conversation having with you a zillion years ago where I actually looked at the track record of what happened when other states had moved their primaries from September to August. And, and we had pretty good evidence that the, the, the turnout went down pretty dramatically and that the evidence of when you moved it um, from a it's, it's going to go down if you move it before September anyhow, because people aren't thinking about it. But the August primary dates were, were far worse in terms of turnout than moving it into June. And there were and so there were people like myself, I remember talking about this on your show, saying that, that if we were concerned about the turnout issue, um, it would make more sense in June. The problem for the legislature is that because they are in session until until May, and sometimes, as we now know in the last few years, <laughs> yes. they're in a special session all yeah. the time. They can't raise funds while they're, while they're doing in session. Um, the, the incumbents um, are at a, at least they feel, they're handicapped and don't want to have it um, in terms of that time of year. But, but yes, all things being equal, we know that August primaries are, are not very good in terms of, of um, voter turnout. Okay. All right. Because and that's just because it does seem like it's it's a particularly difficult time. And has there ever been a case that you can remember where so much is at stake? I mean, certainly that DFL primary back in uh, 2010 with Governor Dayton. You mentioned Matt Intenza was there. Uh, Speaker Margaret Anderson Kelleher. Blois Olson said, "Well, on the Republican side, Tom Emmer pretty much had it wrapped up." But have you ever re- remembered a, a time where that? A primary, or well, certainly not the August. The August primary had so much at stake on both sides when it comes to the governor's race. Not really. I can think of at different times where we've had primaries be critical for, um, for for either of the parties, but not necessarily together. I mean, think about over time. For example, in '94, Mike Freeman was the DFL endorsed candidate who loses eventually to John Marty. We know in 1990, if I remember correctly, it was Arnie Carlson losing to, and I'm forgetting his name now, um, and John Grunseth, to John Grunseth, um, and then about three weeks or four weeks before the election, Grunseth has to leave the race. Carlson gets replaced. Um, so, so. You know, and I can think of you know various other ones where one party um, it was very critical in terms of what happened, but to have the combination of where we're going to have I think hotly contested primaries on both sides, um, where both sides are going to deplete um, a lot of resources going into the primaries before they get to the general elections. I think that's pretty significant. Now, one can make the argument and say that primaries may be good in terms of making candidates better, making them better in terms of um, articulating their issues and so forth, but it also means two things. First, it means that they, they go after the primary. They now have, let's see, August, September, October, roughly three months, three months um, to now make sure they raise the capital to run for the general election. And then second, there's a different logic in running in primaries versus general elections. Now, it's not quite a saying that I think what 
Romney was accused of this many years ago, Mitt Romney at the presidential level, of saying, well, we can just pivot and change things during the general election. But there, but there is something truth to that, because you're going to be running on what mostly base, what I mean by that, mobilizing your bases um, during the primary, speaking to um, your DFL or Republican populations, which are more liberal or more conservative than the general election, and then figuring out how now in the general election how to perhaps maybe run as a, a uh, mobilizing your base and trying to run towards the center at the same time. So these become very, very complex things to do. And this is where I think Tim Pawlenty has an advantage now. Right. Because if, in fact, we're talking about the fact that, that both on both sides, um, the endorsed candidate is going to have to, or the winner is going to have, winner of the primary has expended lots of resources to get to the primary. It's going to now advantage the candidate who has fundraising skills moving forward. And I have to say at this point, that might advantage Tim Pawlenty. Right. And, and on the Democratic side, I guess it would advantage Tim Walls. I, I would think right. now what also is going to complicate this election, too, is the fact that this governor's race is attracting national attention. Um, we know, for example, the, the Republican... It's 68 degrees. Uh, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz. All right, let's talk about the Republican side and their August primary for governor. You've got uh, Hennepin County Commissioner Jeff Johnson, who was the GOP candidate against Governor Mark Dayton in 2014. Obviously, he lost. Uh, now he is running in the August 14th primary, and he's going to have to face former Governor Tim Pawlenty. Uh, your thoughts about that showdown? Tim Pawlenty will have a lot of money. I mean, we know that. He's, I mean, from the time he declared he was going to run, or a rumor he was going to run to when he actually really declared and then noted then rec- and then talked about how much money he had raised. He had well over a million dollars. I mean, he's far outstripped how much money Jeff Johnson has has raised. And so we're looking at Tim Pawlenty, who has his donor base. He has quite a few people who still remember him. He's going to have a lot of money, and that's going to clearly give him lots of advantage going into the election. Disadvantages that he has is the fact that it has been what twelve years since he won statewide office. Um, there's a lot of voters who don't know who he is at this point, especially younger voters. And also, I think we're looking at a Republican Party in a very different position now than it was twelve years ago. Jeff Johnson um, doesn't have anywhere near the money. He'll have some of the resources from the Republican Party, um, and um, I and I think he still faces perhaps some, let's say, name recognition problems compared to Tim Pawlenty. Um, this is, this is going to be a, 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 a tough primary. I mean, when I look at both of the DFL and Republican, but I look at the Republican run right now, these are going to be very, very tough primaries, and I think they're going to potentially be very, very nasty primaries. Again, whoever comes out of these, as we talked about before break, um, there's going to be sound bites you know, made against Jeff Johnson or made against Tim Pawlenty um, that will be used you know, in the general election by their opponents. In terms of uh, going forward for Governor Pawlenty, he pretty famously said, you know, after that TMZ tape came out just before the 2016 presidential election that that uh, then-candidate Donald Trump was unfit, uh, unhinged, and he ended up actually voting for him. He said that, you know, he cast the ballot, you know, absentee beforehand. But does that criticism of Donald Trump hurt him because certainly Jeff Johnson is using that. 
Jeff Johnson um, would be foolish not to use that clip and to use that quote um, in commercials against Tim Pawlenty a hundred times. And, and I think that's going to be something that Tim Pawlenty um, is going to have to have to deal with at some point because this is a state, as we know, that Donald Trump almost won. He got within 50,000 votes of Hillary Clinton, actually less than 50,000 votes of Hillary Clinton. Um, party really is much more a Donald Trump party than before. And I think it's going to be hard to motivate um, the, the, the base to support Tim Pawlenty. Now, the question becomes, is this a party that feels more comfortable with Jeff Johnson? Recall, of course, Jeff Johnson ran for governor last time two years before Donald, um, before Donald Trump won the presidency. So, so potentially Jeff Johnson may be better poised in terms of capturing some of that, that, that Trump support because I don't think he ever came out hard against Donald Trump. But he did not. No, yeah. I mean, he didn't, you know, I think he supported Marco Rubio. He yeah. actually ran Marco Rubio's campaign. Right? And this is the only state that Marco Rubio won. Right. And then, of course, Rubio dropped out. And then I think he supported, I'm talking about Jeff Johnson here, I think he supported Ted Cruz. And then he went to Trump. But he never kind of launched a, a, an attack on Trump the way Pawlenty did and the way that uh, former Senator Norm Coleman did. No, you're absolutely correct. And and so potentially a combination of the fact that there's no obvious paper trail for Jeff Johnson um, having said anything that we know of at this point, you know, sharply critical of Donald Trump versus plenty that there is on um, that, that paper trail and those quotes. Jeff Johnson may be in a better position of being able to, to um, define himself as part of the party of of Donald Trump, and if that's so, um, and we know that the the Donald Trump wing seems to still be relatively motivated, at least some indications of that, relatively motivated in terms of voting in this election, uh, um, on sort of that aspect, um, Jeff Johnson, I think, has some advantage. And since we know that the primary is really all about what? Delivering the votes at the end of the day when we're going to have, again, so few people showing up, you know, in terms of, again, put together, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb, and right now I haven't done a really good analysis, but I'm going to say if we get between the DFL and the Republican um, primaries, if we get 8 to 9% of the, um, the, you know, the, the state to turn out, that will be considered relatively successful. Um, now, I may be off a little bit on that, but that's where it's going to be. And that's and 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 especially when it comes to uh, um, the Republicans, um, maybe not feeling um, the new Republican Party now, which is Trump, not feeling comfortable with Tim Pawlenty. It'll be curious to see how he converts his money over into into mobilization and messaging. Right. And, and to see how much, I mean, you know, it, it looks like he's got a lot of, you know, some of the organizers there. He certainly has been very successful in fundraising. He, you know, he's obviously a very skilled politi politician. You know, he wouldn't have won the governor's office, you know, two times before. Mm -hmm. uh, but these are different days. And Jeff Johnson, actually, interestingly enough, uh, and Royce Olson mentioned this to me, I was not aware of it, picked up the endorsement of Congresswoman Michelle Bachman. Yes. I, and I, think so. and I think that's going to be pretty significant at this point. And I would be surprised if he doesn't pick up the endorsements of people like Tom Emmer um, and, and maybe a couple of other people. I mean, I'll be curious to see also 
where, you know, where people like, for example, Eric Paulson lie in terms of, of endorsements. Um, so this is, this is going to be kind of interesting to see because on both sides, really, when you think about it here, the, 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 the battle on the gubernatorial level for both the Democrats and Republicans is in many ways about the battle for the heart and soul of the two parties and about the future of where the two parties are going to go in the state of Minnesota. And right now, it is just, I would say, anybody would be a fool to make a, a firm prediction right now and say what's going to happen because it is all about, like I said, it's about Trump, it's about generations, it is about money, it is about mobilization of, of small numbers of people, and it's, again, it's about, about a shift, about a lot of new voters um, potentially coming into the system on both sides, and, 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 and are they going to show up on, on primary day? All right, chatting with Professor David Schultz, we're going to take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about the on-again, off-again, on-again, it seems, summit between the U.S. and North Korea. Keep it here, News Radio 830 WCCO. 847 in the Twin Cities, Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz. Uh, you are going to be going to South Korea here in really just a few weeks. Yes. Uh, the summit apparently is back on in Singapore on June 12th, which is very soon. Uh, your thoughts about the on-again, off-again nature of this and potentially this summit that really has historic implications, not just for the Korean Peninsula, but for U.S. foreign policy. It really does. It's pretty significant, but I think it's still a very risky summit to take place. I mean, one of the basic rules about major summits like this is you generally don't hold these summits until you know everything that's going to happen in them. You know, even going back to like the major breakthrough when Nixon went to China, all that was sort of choreographed and everybody knew what was going to happen before it, before it actually occurred. You know, here what strikes me as kind of unusual about this summit is, is from every account that I've read, it's not clear if they know exactly what's going to come out of this, and the expectations are very different. I think the Trump administration is still hoping what they get out of this is what the the, the denuclearization or the path for denuclearization of North Korea. And I'm not convinced at all that that's where North Korea wants to be. Um, what their goals are um, is less clear. Is it, is it more international aid? Is it a lifting of the embargoes? I mean, in the past, we've seen under Bush and under Clinton, when those two previous administrations, even to some extent under Obama, when they've negotiated with, with, with North Korea, um, the end result has been that North Korea hasn't lived up to its bargains. So I think this is risky. So even if it still does occur, and I can see, again, something happening in the next few days that, you know, that, that maybe cancels it, you know, one of the two sides pulls out, it's still not clear what we're going to see in terms of what actually comes out of this. And I think that becomes a, a, a risky adventure for the United States, too. In, in terms of um, you know, this on-again, off-again aspect to this, is this something, I mean, is, is this sort of a master stroke by President Trump, you know, sort of the art of the deal, having, having the, the North Koreans come back to him? Or is this, you know, a huge bluff by them? I mean, it, it almost seems something out of a, a spy novel. It does kind of have a Tinker Tinker Soldier, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy aspect to it. You know, to the John Le Carre, you know, reference here. It's hard to tell. I mean, you know, is, 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 is this sort of Trump, 
you know, you know, bluffing, you know, you know, you know, playing, you know, playing in the same way in negotiation domestically. It's hard to tell. I mean, what we're looking at is a foreign policy establishment within the Trump administration that is dramatically weakened. Um, it is more militarized than it's been in the past, and Trump himself, I think, is is going more by gut than necessarily um, we 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 normally see with many administrations where these kind of decisions would be vetted through. So it's it's really hard to tell here if there's really a rhyme or reason to any of this um, in terms of of, of, of again of, of what's actually happening. Um, but having said that. There is some potential here for a break. I mean, we're looking at what seventy or what seventy years, seventy right. something years. I mean, and, and a war, and there are probably people, there are those out there listening who fought in that war. No, exactly. I was going to say we're getting, a, we still have a generation of people who are veterans, you know, from the Korean War. Technically, you know, North and South Korea and the United States are still at war. We're just, we're just at a truce at this point. Uh, something has to break there. I mean, this is this is sort of one of the last Cold War sites left in the world. Um, North Korea's uh, regime certainly can't continue the way it's going at this point in terms of some of the, the embargoes uh, strangleholding it and in terms of putting the kind of resources that it puts into a nuclear program, which is very, very expensive. So I think there's lots of things that are that are starting to come to a head here in terms of inevitability, whether or not again they translate over into a framework for for some type of transformation over there. I don't know, but the next step I think after this is whatever North Korea and and the United States lay out for a framework. That eventual framework is going to have to also include China, South Korea, perhaps Japan and Russia which are also pretty significant players in terms of what's happening over there. And, and so a broader, I think a broader structure for peace is going to eventually have to be um, multinational. You know, on another front, um, the president's attorneys apparently have sent a letter to Robert Mueller uh, asserting, uh, you know, executive privilege in, in trying to avoid an interview uh, from the special prosecutor. Is that and, and trying to avoid a, specifically a subpoena, is that going to work in the end? Well, from a legal point of view, if precedent means anything, there's a case from 1974 called U.S. versus Nixon, where then Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski um, secured a subpoena issued by um, by John Sirica, a district court judge, asking for the White House tapes that were being held by Richard Nixon to be turned over. And eventually the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against Richard Nixon, arguing that, that while executive privilege does exist, um, it has to give way to the needs of, of, of a criminal justice process and criminal investigation within the executive branch. If that precedent means anything, um, the assertions by, by Trump's attorneys of executive privilege shouldn't work. They should, they should fail in this situation here. And the question becomes then, you know, if, if, if Mueller does issue that subpoena, um, the president refuses, that's really the next step, what happens at that point. Right. Or, or, or will he do, will he voluntarily, which he has said that he'd be willing to do, mm-hmm. voluntarily submit to uh, an interview, which his attorneys apparently don't want him to do because he has a, a history of 
stretching or em- em- embellishing the truth, to say the least, right. and, and they don't want him doing that. No, you're absolutely correct. I've actually made the argument saying that I think the more deadly thing in one level for Donald Trump would be a repeat of 1974 in a different way, where in February of 74, a grand jury lists the President of the United States as an unindicted co-conspirator, unclear that it could indict. Let us say, and we don't know, I mean, Mueller could wind up clearing Trump on this. We don't know, so we're speculating here. But let's say he has evidence of obstruction of justice or under, underlying illegality. If a special prosecutor were to come in and say, um, we believe that you know, he has committed crimes, but we're, we're going to list, leave him as an unindicted co-conspirator, this puts Trump in the worst of all positions because he can't go to court to clear his name. Um, he's not been indicted and so forth. That 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 becomes, and he can't obviously. Well, anyhow, that becomes, I think, a a position that I could see Robert Mueller coming up with in terms of saying that we believe there's enough evidence of illegality. Um, we're not going to indict uh, indict other people around there, and that really puts. Trump in a very, very bad position. Yeah. I mean, any way you look at it, this thing still isn't going away. This is not going away. And, and, and it, it sort of ebbs, it ebbs and flows, but it just keeps, you know, the waves keep coming. You're absolutely correct. And don't forget the fact that Paul Manafort's trial, um, former campaign manager, I think is scheduled for September. I wouldn't be surprised it gets delayed. I am sort of guessing, but we don't know, um, that there may be a few more indictments out there in trials. So that this is something that I think is going to, um, even if the investigatory part of the special investigators' work is done in the next few months, the trials and so forth are going to take us clearly into next year. All right. Well, listen, uh, Professor David Schultz, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you tomorrow on WCCO Sunday morning on the TV side at 10.30 a.m. Yes, I look forward to seeing everybody then. Right. Uh, Well, thank you so much. It's always great to talk with you, and uh, Professor Schultz will be a live guest on WCCO TV Sunday morning. Also a live guest, uh, the man who got the GOP endorsement uh, at that convention up in Duluth, Jeff Johnson, Hennepin County Commissioner Jeff Johnson, he's got the endorsement, but now he's facing another enormous test. He has got to face off against former Governor Tim Pawlenty uh, in the uh, August 14th primary. So we'll talk to Commissioner Jeff Johnson about that. And we'll also break down further the latest fallout from the DFL convention in Rochester in which Representative Aaron Murphy bested Congressman Tim Walls and State Auditor Rebecca Otto. So please tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. Mike Augustinak and I will be there bright and early and we'll have all the news and the weather for you. Take care. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.